how do we elicit that sense of pride in what we're doing? And we only do that when we're able to help them see how we connect what they're doing with the impact it has on others, at the same time connecting it to their own life purpose. My guest today is Ranjay Gulati. Ranjay is a top Harvard Business School professor and Harvard MacArthur Fellow. His research has been published in the Harvard Business Review, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and the Financial Times. His latest book is Deep Purpose, the Heart and Soul of High-Performance Companies. Ranjay's research shows how companies can embed purpose much more deeply than they currently do, and in doing so, deliver performance benefits that reward customers, suppliers, employees, shareholders, and communities alike. I recently sat down with Ranjay, and we discussed how doing good and doing well are not mutually exclusive, and that businesses that can do both have an edge over their competitors. Ranjay, I want to thank you for being on the show. I've been looking forward to this since we spoke last week, and I got a copy of your book, and we had a great conversation. I told you to hold off on a lot of thoughts and ideas that we had on the call because I wanted it to be on the podcast. But well, thank you for having me, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. I had a great conversation with you, and looking forward to continuing it. All right, man. Okay, super. So the name of the book, folks, is Deep Purpose, the Heart and Soul of High Performance Company, Companies. Now, Ranjay isn't your regular Ivy League professor. He's a superstar. He has his PhD from Harvard University, a master's degree from MIT, two bachelor's degrees, computer science and economics, so bottom line, let's take it that you're a smart guy. We'll start from there. But there's one thing, one thing that I want to just get in right off the bat. Why did you have to write this book? You know a lot about a lot of things. You're around CEOs. They consult with you. You go on seminars. You speak to people. You have your students or senior level execs many times. Why did you feel the need to come out with a book called Deep Purpose, what was missing in the marketplace that you have to fill? Well, it's one thing about what's in the marketplace, but also what's in yourself. A book is a very personal project. So let me start with the marketplace, and I'll tell you about myself after that. Um, from the marketplace standpoint, I think we are facing a meaning crisis today. Right? We talk about the great resignation or the great reshuffle, but what we're seeing is increasingly human beings, more of us, and COVID has only made it much more extreme, are more introspective and are looking for finding some kind of meaning and purpose in our lives. Now, having said that, there was a time when we could compartmentalize our lives and say, there's my day job, and then I'm living my life after 5 p.m. And increasingly, people expect more coherence in their lives. They want their work to be an extension also of who they feel their life. Are they making a difference in their work as they are in their life? And all of us deep down want to have an impact. We have this, what Joseph Campbell called a hero's journey. We all have in our deep down inside of us, we have this kind of idea that I want to do something. And, and, and companies, we are failing. We're failing miserably in this regard. You know, we, you know, and, and, and our knee-jerk response is, I can pay them more. Wait, and wait, it wait, wait. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. 
I'm not getting what you're saying is we're failing. Who's failing? The companies, the corporations that are making billions of dollars, they're profitable, they're employing tens of thousands and upwards of hundreds of thousands, even in case millions of people. You're telling me we're failing? The business failing? What's failing? We're failing companies that are profitable and successful on most counts are increasingly finding they're struggling with the talent war, right? When you have talent walking out the door, it, it's a lagging indicator. It doesn't affect your financials. You would you know this better than me. It, it, has, a, it has an effect that comes later, right? When your best talent starts to walk out the door, right? It doesn't hit your bottom line right away. And increasingly in this knowledge economy, you know, talent is your, your currency into the future and you need to provide really interesting and meaningful work where you compensate them well as well. And, and understanding that is one piece of the puzzle in the marketplace. But I wrote this book for a personal reason. I mean, I think is, you know, I myself was coming to a midlife stage in my life. I was taking a sabbatical. Um, and I was walking to our graduation ceremony for this executive program I chaired. And one of my students asked me, he said, you know, Ranjay, the biggest gift I got out of eight weeks on campus was I figured out my purpose in life. And I'm going to make some big changes in my life when I go back. And I'm going to expect more of my employer. And thank you. And then he said, have you thought about it? And I had been the one who put in place a coaching curriculum to help them figure out their purpose in life. But I hadn't done it myself. And I was like, my God, I got to think hard about this. And then he left me with this last curveball that how do I know if my company is living a purpose? And I didn't know the answer to that. So, you know, I, that conversation really kind of lingered in my head and forced me to think about, here's a question somebody's asking, what is the purpose of business? What is our, our own purpose? And that led me on this purpose exploration journey that landed me into this book project okay in the long run got it so now i'm gonna ask you this back in the day if you got a job and there was job satisfaction you were challenged and you made a nice paycheck it was a happy day uh you had job security you had great benefits there was a future there might have been a corner office somewhere for waiting with your name on it that if you put in a lot of work, a lot of effort, you're going to get there one day. Now you're telling me it's not enough? And this transition, it is not enough. It's enough for some people in certain categories of jobs and in certain sectors of the economy. So let me be very clear. It is enough. But then what we saw was in the last two decades, we went from job satisfaction, which was the holy grail, to job engagement. And engagement was tied to having interesting work, what was called the voice and choice idea. Give people voice in the job and give them some choices in the job. Give them autonomy, give them interesting work, give them a chance to speak up, and that became engagement. And so people started measuring engagement. Employee engagement scores were paraded up and down, right? Then we lead to more inspired workers, people who feel inspired when they come to work. Now, I want you to just imagine one thing is, in the classic models of economics, we talk about an organization as a nexus of contracts. Everyone comes to work around and is contractually connected in some way or the other. You exchange work. The idea here is a nexus of commitments, where people feel inspired at work. 
they feel they're doing something larger. And how do you elicit that kind of response from your employees? Similarly, your customers who trust your products and come in your company and are much more loyal. So purpose is not just an employee-oriented exercise. It's also externally oriented. How do you elicit, engage with your stakeholders? So the, the biggest thing I discovered was people confuse purpose with purpose statement. Purpose is not a mission statement. It's not a purpose statement. Purpose is something bigger. It's an ideal. It's a way, it's an organizing principle. Okay, okay, let me stop you. Let me stop you. You and I, we're going to go into business tomorrow. We're going to sell screws and screwdrivers at our, and we're going to open up a hardware store. And you're in charge of hiring these people. I'm the money. You're the, you're the working partner. You're the smart guy. I'm smart enough to know you're the smart guy. I gave you the check. Now, you're going to go hire a staff. And you're going to have people who worked in Home Depot, and you're going to see people who have worked in Lowe's. And you're going to have a whole bunch of questions you want to ask them to get this job. Basically, it's selling screws and screwdrivers. Are you telling me that you're going to try to find those workers who not only want to do the job and assume our salaries uh, comparable to everyone else's and all the benefits, be all that equal, you're telling me that we're going to have a better life, a better business, a better everything, if you go out and find those people who wake up every morning and say, I want to make the world a better place because we're selling screws and screwdrivers to the average guy down the street. I think so. I think we can, you know, think about the, and I'll tell you, I'll give you a real example of that. You know, first of all, you have to, everyone wants to feel like they have, are having an impact on somebody else's life. Selling screws and screwdrivers, I think a lot of times we forget how what we are selling is helping other people. What are they doing? We're solving somebody's really material problem. Remember, without a screw or screwdriver, I probably won't be able to hang those pictures up on the wall. I don't know. And a lot of times I might say, I don't care. What do you want? What size screw do you want? What size screwdriver do you want? Or I can ask the question, why do you want it? And a lot of, this was the classic story at Best Buy where they trained their blue, blue shirt workers saying, don't ask them what size TV they want. Ask them where do they sit and watch TV? Maybe they're getting the wrong TV. So you need to, how do you build empathy with your customer? And you only do that when people feel a sense of pride around what they're doing. And, you know, I didn't believe any of this that I'm telling you just now. Till I actually came across some research by these two professors, one from Yale and one from Michigan. And they studied people at a hospital and they looked at the workers all the way from the physicians down to the janitors. And they wanted to see how did they think about their work? My work is a job. I do it for money. My work is a career. I do it to get ahead. All my work was a calling. I do it because it gives me meaning and purpose. And they also want to get paid, but which, are, which is the primary orientation? Why do you want all three? But why do you come to work? And the physician number was not surprising. It was one third, one third, one third. The janitor number completely confused them because it was one third, one third, one third. Then the question was, why would one third of janitors in a hospital say their work is a calling? And what they found was they said, no, no, I don't come to work to clean. I'm helping people. They're so grateful to me when I do even the simplest of things for them. They're in a vulnerable state. 
and the smallest of things make a big difference. I can see the difference I'm making. I'm really proud of what I do. So employees experience a sense of pride. How do we elicit that sense of pride in what we're doing? And we only do that when we're able to help them see how we connect what they're doing with the impact it has on others, at the same time connecting it to their own life purpose. Why do you, another company I looked at, KPMG, they had every employee fill out a questionnaire, one index card, why do you come to work? And you would think they'll all say, I came to work to make money. Some said, yes, I do. I'm the primary provider in my household. But so many talk about why they come to work. Now, everything we've discussed right now is very focused on the employee. Can we take that idea that a company having a purpose, is it only for the motivation of employees? And actually, no, it does much more than that. So I, I talk about four benefits of purpose. The first one we're touching on now is motivational. Okay, let me stop you right there before we get into further, because I'm not going to let you go on no. without challenging you every step of the way, because Absolutely. I want to tell you, I'm trying to be a wise ass to you, but I do want to tell you, I do believe in a lot what you say, because I wake up every morning with a purpose. If I wasn't making money doing this, I'd still do it. Because to me, money is just a way to count. It's just a way to pay my bills. But when I'm writing newsletters, when I'm giving people recommendations, when I'm answering questions, when I'm making complexity, taking complexity, making it simple, and getting emails back from people telling me you've made a difference in my life, that's it. I'm in. I'm in. So I do agree. I don't agree. Let me rephrase. I'm, I, I'm, everything you say, everything you're saying resonates with me. So I'm not trying to even play devil's advocate. I just want to be... I just want to fine-tune this just a bit, and you'll see where I diverge a little from, from your book. So if why do you come to work every day? You could be teaching any, we could be doing anything. You could be consulting. You could be, I don't know, you, you could have got 14 degrees in music if you wanted to. Why do you come to work every day? I'm asking you. Yes. So I totally buy into the mission of my institution, which is educate leaders who make a difference in the world. Okay, so you're not seeing, you're not seeing, you're not seeing, I'm sorry to interrupt you, you're not seeing a bunch of privileged, rich people sitting in your class paying you money so they can get richer off the backs of others. You instead, instead see what in your students? We have a broad diversity of students in our classroom. Some on financial aid, some on not on financial aid. They come from all over the world. They come from all walks of life, many of whom have overcome tremendous adversity to be where they are. And the one thing I know is that they are, they are in a privileged position going forward in that once they graduate from here, they are going to have a chance to make a difference in other people's lives. So you see that. You don't see that student taking the test and getting an A or writing a term paper. You're seeing in your mind's eye that student sitting in front of you 10 or 15 years later making a major decision which could impact their customer base, their workers, competitors, to make society a better place. Is that a fair statement? Exactly. I see, and, and, and I have to clarify to you, they all come from many, many different backgrounds. And, and I see that if I can impact them and get them to think differently, 
it will have a force multiplier effect going forward on the people who work for them, on the customers they will serve, on the markets they will serve, on the society they'll be part of, on the community, on the environment. If we can shape their thinking now, how might it also have an effect on the world? That's one piece of it, teaching. The other part is research. You asked me, why did I write this book? I wrote this book by looking at leaders who inspired me. And most of their stories are not told because they're not people who are widely known. You, you wouldn't have heard of a company called Bueller, a private Swiss company in Switzerland. No. no but by the way, let, let, me just, let me just interrupt you, man. If folks, I get the book, even if you don't agree and you don't like everything Ranjay's saying, get the book for one reason alone. You will learn so much about companies you have never heard before. See how they operate. See which niches they work in and why their business works. I would, you know, I just think it's one of your students should be doing this. Taking a, doing a study on all of the companies you have in there and chart how well they've done, why they've done better, and what industries they're in. Because I want to tell you, and you're, look, you're, you're, you're a researcher par excellence. I love learning about Lego and I love learning about all these other companies and Mars and in, in ways that you bring to light that I would have never found out before. Really, really well done on that end. I'm sorry to interrupt you on that. No, I was just, thank you for that. I appreciate your saying that. Uh, it took me three years to write, so I hope somebody will read it. Uh, but, you know, I was inspired by these leaders. And, and I wanted to share their message about, and what they do is, the, the kernel of the idea here is around the larger debate that can you make money and do good at the same time? Right? Companies that actually are able to find ways to perform and have a purposeful orientation. And in your language, it also connects short-term and long-term. Can I deliver a focus on long-term value creation while also delivering quarterly results? So how do I do that? And, and, and this becomes, people always frame these as orthogonal choices. And I wanted to see can this be done? We have this endless debate right now about the future of capitalism. Can we actually survive? Can we actually thrive? And maybe we need to change our system. And I was looking for inspiring examples of companies that have found a way forward. And, and to me, that was exciting to see. So the answer is it, it can be done. And it's being done as we speak now with forward-thinking companies who do not see the end user as just a dollar sign, do not see their workers as cogs in a big wheel, in a big organization. This is a sea change from the way we thought about business in the 1950s and the 1960s. Damn the environment, damn the customer, just keep making the product, keep selling the product. If it was safe, not safe, irrelevant. It was the company's bottom line that was important. So that's the way I remember reading about business back in high school and that was taking a snapshot of the 1960s when you had all these conglomerates, it really didn't matter. There was no such thing as caring about, stop all that, what do you call it, yoga kind of thinking? What was it called? Uh, yoga babble. Yoga babble. It was basically bottom line. How is the company making money? Now we're changing that? So I want to just, since you mentioned that, let me just talk about a dear friend of mine who is now passed, uh, was the late Jack Welch. And everyone pinned on him this idea that he was the guru of shareholder value maximization. He was the one who started talking about it. And so they all put it on him. 
And he came to my class many times. And one point he made was, he said, look, shareholder value maximization is a dumb idea. He said, shareholder value is a byproduct. It's a byproduct of pursuing greatness in the marketplace, greatness in the eyes of your customers, greatness in the eyes of your employees. And, and it was, a, so this idea that, that people somehow were talking about shareholder value maximization, they would think it's a byproduct. Now, some people flipped it around and said, that's the be all and end all. And what I'm learning in, in looking at even small ventures, the greatest entrepreneurs are not one saying, I have a cool idea, my new product. They're like, I want to change this marketplace. And I'm going to think of a range of products and services that can change this marketplace. They start with an ideal. And remember that ideal doesn't have to just be save the world or the Amazon forest. It can be a very commercial market-driven idea. Ideal, I'm sorry. So how do we reshape our thinking saying, stop thinking of widgets you're going to sell to maximize shareholder value to how you're going to reshape a marketplace and address a very important problem. Hey, give me an example. And, okay, give me an example of someone doing that right. So um, let's think of, uh, uh, I'll just, uh, let me mention to you, I'll talk about Gotham Green. So Gotham Green came up with this idea that, you know what, the way food is being produced and distributed is highly detrimental to the environment. You know, the overuse of water scarcity, space scarcity, and we have tremendous spoilage. Some estimate in some categories, especially like lettuce and herbs, the spoilage can be as high as 50%. And here we have huge amounts of greenhouse gas emissions coming out of the food sector. So they had this idea, and then there were these unutilized spaces. So they had this idea that we're going to use urban rooftops to do hydroponic farming, which is very low usage of water, and there's no spoilage and no transportation costs. So you look at the environmental footprint and you can make money doing it because these are unutilized spaces. But no transportation goes from the farm to the to the store, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Pick, right. In in New York, actually, they're using the rooftop of Whole Foods. So Amazing. literally you're bringing it down the elevator, right? Mm -hmm. So now how now you you look at people like that who are coming up with this idea that you know how do we create a viable profitable business that's what they're trying to do they're not trying to say save the world they're not like cloaking themselves in green saying we're delivering lower than normal returns because we're doing good for society no they're saying we're delivering outsized returns and doing good for society now people also add to this this idea that oh do you have to make trade-offs is it all win-win can you do win-win? And they say, no, you can't. So one of the toughest decisions they had to make was packaging. How do we package? And they end up using pet plastic because it's detrimental to the environment, but they said, that's the only thing that keeps lettuce fresh longer. Another company I looked at, public company is Etsy, right? So when Etsy went public, as you may remember, you know, in the first nine months, the stock tanked like 60, 70%. And there was concerns that it was going to be taken private. And, and there was all this kind of blowback against them saying that, you know, and they kept saying, we're doing good. We're saving the world. We're doing all these good things. We are really, we're not, we're a socially responsible company. We were a B Corp. We don't need to make money. And the investor said, that's not acceptable. So along comes Josh, uh, Josh Silverstein, who comes in and says, look, 
you got to make money and and you can do good but you can't not make my money so that's not an excuse that i'm doing good for society so you start to see what i call the practical idealists they have an ideal to do good for society make a difference to their customers and the world but they're practical also and they want to make money and you know etsy etsy story is a fantastic company so and they did a phenomenal job of course they benefited a lot from covid and the purchase of cloth masks but you know so you start to see leaders who are trying to understand what is the role and place of business and can we make money and do good and i think is it, the challenge of course is how do you then embed these ideas into an organization it's great to have a purpose statement but how do you actually do something with it so part of the thing i that really confused me in this process was a lot of companies do what i call purpose washing you know theranos had a purpose so did purdue pharmaceutical so did enron right so everyone parades a purpose so whenever whenever in trouble parade a purpose and you we call it virtue cloaking hiding in a virtuous cloak that i'm a good person i'm i'm a good, really trust me i'm going to do good and this makes people even more cynical about these ideas saying oh it's businesses as usual and i think they do a huge disservice so i think like companies like theranos by parading their purpose continuously i think they did a huge disservice to the people who actually think they might be something around over here so so in in your in your research you're finding out what i've thought was very difficult to do was to do good and make a profit you either when you either were a non non excuse me a non profit or not for profit or you were the other extreme you were totally for profit and what how you made that profit as long as it's within the legal limits of the law that was okay because you were increasing shareholder value you're telling me now that you're seeing a new movement in the in capitalism and from the businesses you're describing that are trying not only trying to marry the two but they're basically serving two masters and it's working even better than just serving one or the other is that is that accurate yes but it's more complicated than that it always it's is right <laughs> yes <laughs> reality is so what this you the idea you just said is absolutely true that the, the there's and this is not new right this is not new this has been debated for the last couple of decades that there are business models ideals of companies that are trying to do good and do well at the same time here's where it got taken a bit further and confused us some people said okay i will only do things when they do good and do well so i'm going to look for do good and do well intersection the intersection of do good and do well then you have people on the left side saying no 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 that's giving businesses a cop out they will only do good when it's good for them tax them it should be painful so then you're like oh so now you're going to this kind of polarized debate about i want to do good or i want to do well i can't do both how am i going to do this and what you see is companies are struggling with this you know if you're a bp or a shell you're not going to get out of fossil fuels tomorrow right but maybe you'll say i'm going to put myself on a transitional journey and i'm going to find my path and i'm going to put out a public commitment about when i will be out of it 
And how do I get that? How do I manage the portfolio of my products? All this happened at Pepsi. Pepsi is not going to get out of the cola business. They're not. But they've got a portfolio of products to manage. So then you're saying, okay, how am I going to have healthy? And how am I going to have indulgent? And I'm going to have to find a way to connect the two, have a portfolio of offerings. And I'm going to try to take my unhealthy things and make them as healthy as possible. So you start to see it's not this pure form. I'm a goody-goody. I do only good things. And I happen to make money doing them. The real life is messier than that. But, and I think is how do we navigate through this complex balancing, trading off, giving up something for something else. And, and something in the challenge in this is people like to say, who's the first among equals? You say everything, all stakeholders are equal. Who's the first? And shareholders always win. And you're saying to yourself, well, I don't know. Not always. I'm going to have to sometimes trade off shareholder value for customer value. I have to give the customers more and shareholders less or employee value. Or I'm going to have to give planet value or community value. So you're trying to find a way to thread across all these different needles and say, what is the right course? And having some kind of a yardstick around this kind of journey, I think is going to be a source of advantage for some companies. Okay. And that's what the companies are looking at. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Because I think if you have two CEOs and all things being equal, uh, same company, same business, same business environment, if you ask one, do you want to do good? Sure, but not at the expense of making profits. And if you ask someone, uh, the, 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 the competitor, uh, do you want to make profits? Well, not at the expense of destroying the environment, just as an example. So one of those companies are going to be at a disadvantage at some point. You, but you're saying here that we're now seeing uh, a, a, a new a lane that is actually asking these questions where 20 years ago, these weren't even questions that were even being brought up. Exactly. And and you can look at, you know, Larry Fink's letter came out today, you know, and you can see what Larry's new letter says. You know, he's saying, look, we can constantly frame these as, as oppositional constructs, long-term value versus short-term value, right? Environment versus profit. And, you know, these are not or constructs anymore. They're and constructs. And we have to recognize as business leaders that, you know what, you're going to have to find a way to satisfy many masters. Now, this makes some people uncomfortable. In finance, people like to say, you know, by creating multiple stakeholders, you're creating agency problems. Now you're giving managers a way out. When they can't deliver returns, they're going to point to the social impact. And you've seen a number of leaders who do that sometimes. Can't deliver returns, point to something else and say, mm. but listen, I'm making a difference in the world. Right, my carbon footprint's more. <laughs> yeah. And investors don't find that acceptable. They're like, you know what? Deliver me returns and do your carbon footprint as well. But if you can't deliver me returns, I don't want to. And that was the Etsy story. And that's what the turnaround of Etsy that I looked at is all about saying, look, we cannot hide behind being good and say, I'm not delivering adequate returns to my shareholders. But it makes people uncomfortable because suddenly now you're giving, trying to give people wiggle room in trade-off across the slave of many masters. Remember that old saying? The slave of many masters is the master. And uh, so 
giving them an out is not acceptable. So I think this is going to be our challenge as we move into this next phase in our economy. How do we hold our business leaders accountable? What are we going to measure them on? Right? How are we going to measure them? But but but, but what will, is performance? But but I will tell you this. I will tell you this from my perspective. If there were two companies or a group of companies in one specific industry, and there is one, let's just use one metric. Let's use return on equity or, or I don't know, uh, earnings growth or revenue, whatever it might be. It doesn't matter. There is one that's clearly superior. And my job as a money manager is to deliver it, beat the S&P by as many basis points as I can. If I now have the choice to invest in company B in that industry because they're do-gooders and they leave a less smaller carbon footprint and what have you. Am I sacrificing? Am I making that decision? Let me choose company B because I'm going to save the world over company A. Okay. Great question. So unless you're an ESG oriented investor, you don't care, right? Unless you're looking for ESG certified I, I, entities. I, 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 I'm looking to help as many widows and orphans who rely on their pension that I'm managing in order to live the highest alpha. Yeah. Okay. So great question. And let me answer that. So first of all, you have earmarked money, unless it's earmarked money for ESG investing, you don't care. But here's the part I want you to think about. You as a money manager should not, maybe don't want to care about this, but let me tell you what the companies are missing out. Those companies that are focused on environment, are focused on delivering value to on ESG, are going to find that they are going to deliver greater earnings. They're going to have more loyal customers. They're going to have more productive employees. They're going to have a more focused strategy. And guess what? So you as a money manager don't have to be evaluating their environmental footprint. It's going to show up in the earnings numbers and the revenue numbers that you're going to be looking at. I think that's what the managers of business need to understand. Don't look for a way out. Don't go in there saying, please, give me a break. I was doing all this good stuff. So I couldn't deliver the returns and I couldn't deliver the top line growth numbers. You know, then you're uh, not doing it. Yeah. I, I would have thought you're crazy if I didn't interview uh, a couple of shows ago, uh, former CEO of Honeywell, Dave Cody. And Dave made a decision that his predecessors polluted, I think it was the Baltimore Harbor area. I'm not exactly sure. And he had the choice, uh, keep paying the fines and litigating and doing whatever and stalling it or clean it up. Now, cleaning up was definitely not a, in, he was not bringing delivering shareholder value as we would determine that. By taking a, a billion dollars, you're not actually seeing any plant and equipment's capital expenditures that are going to return more than a dollar that he invested. So we could agree to that. And he told me, he did it because it was the right thing, not expecting any payback, but he wanted the people who worked for Honeywell to feel good that they work for a company that cares. And you mentioned how the payback does come and they did better. I don't remember exactly uh, the situation, but he said he ran into a senator who saw what he did uh, with, uh, with the Baltimore Harbor, I believe it was the Baltimore Harbor, and said, if Honeywell ever needs a favor or anything, call on us. We're here for you. 
that ne- that'll never show up in the balance sheet. That'll never show up in the income statement. But that is a competitive advantage when three years, two years, five years, something comes down the road, which could be run adversely against Honeywell. Someone's going to remember the do-good he did. So, you know, you, that's a great story. And I love that example because I think what ends up happening, it's showing you that, you know, what you might say is working against shareholder value actually is working for shareholder value. And that's why you have people like Larry Fink and others saying, got to get people to think long-term, understand the value proposition you're trying to build for the enterprise while delivering short-term results. But you can't only be obsessed with a myopic view of the world and ignore the long-term. So his predecessors probably ignored the Baltimore Harbor because they were focused on the short-term saying, this is going to be a quarterly hit. I mean, this is going to be one quarter, not one, maybe two or three quarters I'm going to take a hit. I don't want to take that pain. And yet ignoring kind of the possibilities that it could open up for them. And sometimes companies will do this. We had um, the former CEO of Walmart come to class and he talked about how after Hurricane Katrina, you know, he came to this realization that, you know, global warming was real. We need to do something about it. And so he came up with this idea that he was going to do solar panels on Walmart rooftops. It was economically not the right thing to do. It wasn't viable. Solar panel, cost of solar panels hadn't kind of reached the point where they could. But he said, I got to do it. What is interesting is in the next couple of years, actually, they made it economically very viable. But, you know, somebody took that leap of faith based on a set of moral principles. He didn't even think about, oh, it's going to motivate my employees are going to say Walmart's a good company. I want to work harder for Walmart. You know, sometimes there's this leap of faith on what's the right thing to do. And then you find a way to make it work for you. And some of these people were willing to take that leap of faith. And, and I think that's the key to understand that this is, you can think of this in very narrow terms or broaden your lens a bit. You know, it's, it's like uh, that old story with um, uh, a, a kid at the beach, a whole bunch of starfish land on the, land on the beach and they're stranded there. So this kid keeps taking, picks up one starfish, throws it back. Takes another one, throws it back. A man passes by and says, what are you doing? He goes, I'm throwing the starfish back into the ocean. He goes, there are millions of them here. You're not making a difference. And the kid picked up one, threw it back as well. I made a difference to that one. <laughs> so so, so I, I, what I'm hearing from you is that companies are making a difference in sometimes what you call a leap of faith that are might seem ridiculous in the confines of the way we measure things. And I think one thing that I'm just thinking off the top of my head now, there's no way to measure this yet. If there was a way to measure uh, taking a billion dollars and cleaning up Baltimore Harbor or putting solar panels on a rooftop uh, at a ridiculous amount of money that it's going to pay back in something it'd be an easy decision. So I think the leap of faith is the fact that it's not quantifiable that we can throw into a spreadsheet. Would that be a fair statement? Yes and no. It is hard to quantify, but companies are now aggressively moving to quantify it. One of the companies I looked at was Ernst & Young. And who better to ask about quantifying than accountants, right? They are quantifying the impact of their work on society, on environment, and they're measuring their partners and their bonuses, not just on billable hours. 
But on what? Tell me what, that they did the numbers great, that they put it all nice well, in spreadsheets? Well, what, what is the metric? It, what are they looking at? So they're looking at a number of things. They're looking at kind of social impact. They're looking at community impact. They're looking at customer impact and trying to come up with a way to saying, I'm going to measure you not just on billable hours. So how do I force you to start to imagine what this might mean? And we believe that this is not going to be detrimental to shareholder value immediately or in the long term, because it is good for our business. And good. I'll give you one more that is Viva. You know Viva, uh, the public company. And Viva has uh, relisted itself from being a classic C-Corp to being a public benefit corporation. Describe, now, really, descri describe for our listeners what a public benefit corporation is. Yeah, so a public benefit corporation is where the corporate charter, remember the charter of the corporation that, you know, if you list in Delaware, you know, you have a corporate charter which says that you are in existence. A classic C corporation is for shareholder value. Even legally, it puts it down as they say there's more wiggle room in there but basically talks a lot about shareholder value. That's what C-Corp is around. Public benefit is where it lays out that we exist for the benefit of the public. And so the fiduciary responsibility of the board of directors is around being able to measure and hold management accountable for that public benefit. Now, how is this going to help Viva? And why would the management team, which voted unanimously nearly, because you have to have over 90% of shareholders voting in favor to do this. And I think it's 90 or some threshold, very high threshold. And they got it comfortably. And But why would the CEO founder and largest shareholder himself want to do this? And he said, look, it's good for our business because we are selling into pharmaceutical companies and we are selling them more and more of the IT footprint. And if and they, it makes them uncomfortable that so much of their foot, IT footprint is coming to one company and we are a classic quarterly driven C corporation and okay, fine. You know, Peter Gassner, you're here today, but you'll be gone tomorrow and I'll be stuck with your IT. So then you can gouge me because I'm beholden to you. And he says, I'm going to put it in our charter. And that should make our customers have trust in us. So you see there's reputational benefits. He said, it'll also help our employees. They should feel proud of where they work. So there we are. So you ask yourself, why would a publicly listed company on their own volition with no pressure want to do this. It's not like they want to make less money. They're highly profitable. Go look up Viva and you'll see for yourself a highly profitable, very successful company saying it's good for business. Doing good can be good for business. And somehow we've kind of lost our way on that simple idea. And, and do you, what, what is the pushback on this idea? Because I have a whole bunch of biases against this prior to speaking to you, prior to reading your book. What, what do you hear a lot of that uh, would prevent a company, if you were pitching this and you had your deck and you had all your facts and you went to the S&P 500 companies and knocked on their doors, what's the biggest pushback you're getting? Well, there's several. First of all, I think the world has become very cynical about these kinds of statements, first of all. And, right? Right, and right, by the way, rightly so. Some, right. You mentioned some of them. It's it's like they cloak themselves in in a sense of a higher purpose at the expense of, uh, of, of shareholders making money. You're supposed to excuse that? I mean, it's, you know, and I think, as I, as I was saying to you earlier, you know, Theranos' purpose was to facilitate the early detection and prevention of disease 
and empower people everywhere to live their best possible lives. You know, it's statements like this that really, I think, turn people off and say, you know, this is purpose washing, virtue cloaking. They, one of them calls it virtuous side hustle. So there's the first thing saying, I don't buy this. The second one, I think, which you already turned on to, which is it's a tax on business. Ranjay, all you're describing to me is a tax on business, right? You just want to take some more a bite out of the apple. You're saying shareholders, you can't have the whole apple. You got to share some of that apple. So companies do a little CSR on the side. You know, it's like giving away a percentage of your giving. So, you know, you're a goody, goody person. Give it away on the side. So how much are we going to give away? And let's figure out what that threshold of, it's like, what's the tax rate going to be? What's the corporate tax rate going to be? That was another one. Or it was like, you know what, this do good, do well. It's only when you can do good and do well simultaneously. So I think this idea to hold attention that there are some things that you have to do that are just good, some things that you do that are just doing well, and some things that involve both. And you're trying to connect the dots across this portfolio of activities, but you realize as a business for delivering long-term value, you need to understand how you're going to solve environmental problems. You need to understand how you're going to solve social problems. And guess what? Customers pay to solve problems. If you find a solution to a really important problem, somebody somehow is going to be willing to pay you for it. So find ways to solve important problems. That's what how businesses, great businesses start by. Look at your newsletter. It started by saying, I want to solve a problem. People are confused. And I'm going to help solve a problem. And I'm going to do it in a way that has, you know, good understanding. Competence is very important. But I do it with good intention. And I think this is a word we should reflect on. Purpose and intention. And you're seeing now, uh, you're seeing this trend really starting to pick up steam because of what? What is the impetus? What is what is the catalyst that is making this starting? Because I'm hearing more of it. Five years ago, I didn't hear much of it. Uh, you're seeing a lot more of this now. I, I always thought it was, uh, what'd you say, yoga? Tell me that again, yoga? Yoga babble. Yoga, yoga babble. babble. I thought this was all yoga babble. I totally dismissed it. Now I'm seeing more and more companies. Um, I don't see as many, but I'm starting to see a trend. Five years from now, where do you see this at? Where do you see this at? Well, first of all, I think you saw a lot of kind of PR, corporate PR going into hyperspin about this. I remember looking into, into uh, tech companies uh, making a sort of chip or something. We're going to save the world. We're going to make the planet. It became like silly after a while. That's why I did start off with my screwdriver and, and, and nothing. Like, we're going to save the world by doing, come on. Well... You know, we had a professor in the 1960s, very famous person at Harvard, uh, Ted Levitt, who once said, when a customer comes in to buy a drill or a screwdriver or something from you, he's not here to, or she not here to buy a drill. They're here to buy a hole in the wall. Right. Try to understand what kind of hole they're trying to build and where they're trying to build it. And then you help them find the solution to the hole in the wall. Don't try to sell them a drill. So I you know, just want to get that mm -hmm. off my chest. But you back to your question. Where is this pressure building from? So first thing you see is there is regulatory pressure, okay? There's, there is market or peer pressure. Let's give credit also to some people like Larry Fink, who came out and his letter gets read a lot, putting out there saying, companies need to think about this. And But he was trying to tie it to saying, understand long-term value, folks. I'm not asking you to do charity work. 
This is not charity. He was trying to say, look, it's in your best interest to be solving problems. It's in your own interest, so do it. Long-term value focus delivers value to shareholders. And so understand that you can't, and I think he was reflecting on how he built BlackRock. BlackRock is what it is today with over $10 trillion under management, not because they were chasing the next big buck. They were had a clear idea, fiduciary to the client. We're not gonna run our own money. We're not gonna do any of the things that cause conflict of interest in this industry, right? We're fiduciary to our client. And if we can do good by our client, then good things will happen for us. You know, not, not to comment too much on Larry Fink and and and, and BlackRock, uh, because I don't know as well as you. And um, and um, uh, um, I, I just want to throw this one thing at you. At you, a couple of weeks, a couple of shows ago, we had uh, the book Trillions by Robin Wigglesworth, mm -hmm. and he talked about the whole indexing phenomena. And he talked about John Bogle. And with Vanguard, it wasn't a money management firm. His sole mission was to take this idea, and he became evangelical about it. It was to get those costs to zero as quick as possible and over time. Everything. He became uh, obsessed with driving down costs, which at the time might have seemed ridiculous because you had 200 basis points. You had loads. You had mutual funds with... 8% loads and so on and so forth. And look what happened, you know, doing good and with that striving created an industry and uh, colossal businesses that would have never existed in that old framework. Never, just could never have done it. And, you know, it's, it's a great uh, example also. And I think it, but think about what he was doing. Every one of these examples the founder, it, it, you see this a lot in founder-led enterprises, ventures, right? Not all of them. Some of them are chasing the next big buck and they want to flip that company and they want to IPO it or sell it or raise money as quickly as they can. And, and there's enough hustlers out there. So I don't want to take that, say that there aren't and be ignorant about that. But there are some who start with an idea, not only an idea, but an idea. I want to change. You ask yourself, Google and search, right? Or you look at Apple. Or you look at some of these companies, the foundational idea, and that's why I use the Lego example. In Lego's case, they lost their way. And so along comes a turnaround dealer who says, I want to go back in time to our beginning. Why did we start? Like, let's just go back to why did this company, why do we exist as a business? And if we can just reflect on why we exist, it'll force us to think about a clear strategy, which customers and products we want to sell, and which, how we serve society and how we make a difference. And I think is, but to your question, increasingly customers and employees are going to put real pressure on companies you know, to I, deliver value beyond shareholder value. I, think, I was reading this the other day about Carlsberg Group. And it's interesting what, what I would, you know, they, they, uh, they found their, um, the patriarch had carved this phrase in stone or uses a corporate motto, which was Semper Ardens. Am I pronouncing that right? Semper mm -hmm. Ardens. Always burning. And now a team within a company took the phrase as the name of a new line of handcrafted microbrew beers. So this company was doing everything you mentioned generations ago. They had to rediscover it. It was at a different name at the time. But so I'm seeing this uh, as really a rediscovering 
of why people went into business and what they were trying to do lost their way. Now it seems to be coming full circle. You see that? A great example of that is Johnson & Johnson, right? Where they had, you know, from the Tylenol crisis to where they came out looking so good to a whole decade of crises after crises, testimony in front of Congress by the CEO, being punished, being fined. And then Alex Gorski became the CEO and he said, we're going to challenge our credo. We were known for having a clear purpose of who we are as a business and why we exist. Let's go back to where we began. And so sometimes this kind of reflection and the challenge though in this is it's easy when you look backward to get nostalgic about the past. And the tension these leaders described was use the past, but look forward. And there's this example I use of the Ghanaian, Ghanaian bird called the Sankofa bird, which flies forward with its head looking backward. So how do you connect this idea of being nostalgic because it's so easy to then just be caught up in the past, right? I happen to be employed by an institution that is hundreds of years old. It's very easy for us to be just bask in the glory of the past and not think about the future. But we don't. The idea is having the past to remind yourself of, but looking forward. Right. Well, well, we, well, well, we got into this business to begin with. You know, it, you, you sometimes get so you know, deep into it, you totally forget that. And your, your point is with the deep purposes, in many cases, in, some, in many examples of your book, these companies had it, they just lost it. And now they're rediscovering it. You know, this kind of purpose decay is kind of seems to be endemic in most organizations. You know, I think founder, you can see that. Sometimes, and then you see boomerang founders. Why did Howard Schultz come back to Starbucks. And when he came back, he said, oh, Starbucks has lost its soul. You know, I needed to rediscover. And they, they talk in really spiritual terms about what was lost. And I've tried to, with this book, put my finger on what exactly that it is and, and how to sustain that in an organization, especially today where I think our customers and our employees and our community and our even our governments are going to demand that of business. I think there's greater expectations. You know, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, uh, and as a consumer, if both products are equal and both products are more or less the same price, I'm going to go with the one that does better or does well. If the, 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 the problem I have is when that, that the distance between what I'm paying and the do-good part, that difference, how much am I willing to pay up for that? That, I think, is the, you got to the crux of it. What is the marginal benefit, marginal cost of that thing? And that difference, that has to be very negligible, if none at all. And that's why the do-gooders have to learn to do well. I think it's both sides, the both extremes. The do-gooders have to learn to do well, and the do-wellers have to learn to do good. And I think we can't be, I'm one or the other. And, and I think you're absolutely right in faulting the do-gooders when they say, I'm a do-gooder, so I want to charge you 50% more than the do the other one is. Yeah, and, yeah I, I find that, that I, I, feel, I feel that's like we give 10% of all our profits to save the whales. All right, but if you're 15 or 20% higher than the competitor, I'm really not interested. 
you know, I'll go write myself a check. I'll write a check rather to the organization, you know. Uh, so I think from the consumer's perspective, I can just speak really from my perspective, I have no problem in supporting the do-gooders, no, if, if all things being equal, because it's, it's negligible. It's not even negligible to me. It's totally transparent. I don't even feel that. If, if you're running your organization much more efficiently where you can do good, all the power to you. If I had the choice between both, I'm going to pick you. There's no question about it. It's when you start to, how much am I willing to pay? You know, maybe 5%, maybe 3%, in some cases, quarter of a percent. But I think that's the challenge of those businesses, to keep it where if you price yourself out of the marketplace, at the end of the day, the customer wants to get, you know, price is what you pay, value is what you get. So, you know, saving the whales is great. Don't get me wrong. I'm all for it. But at what cost to me? I don't want to be charged that. And, and, you know, that's a great example. And actually, some of the amazing companies I looked at don't even talk about all the do-gooding they do. There's a small company here called One Mighty Mill. The founder first had founded B. Be Good, the, the fast food chain. And, and, and One Mighty Mill is an amazing kind of, if you haven't had their bagels and bagel chips and breads, I don't know if they're in where you are, but they're definitely available here in Massachusetts. But, you know, they have all this amazing outreach. In their town, they provide, you know, food to the, the public schools. People who live in this, uh, you know, less privileged community where the, the, the factory is located, they chose that on purpose, can come and buy at a discount. They have a whole bunch. Of, and then, they, of course, they're responsible sourcing, all that stuff. But it's something they just do. It's not on their packaging saying, I'm charging you 30% more because 20% of that is going to go to these charitable efforts. Nobody wants that. They have to be competitively priced. They have to have an outstanding product. And if they command a premium, it's because the value they're delivering to the customer, not because they're going to say, I do good. oh, by the way, I did this, so I'm charging you more. And so how a company like One Mighty Mill delivers outstanding product and happens to be doing all these good things too. Yeah, you know, I, I think that the tipping point is going to be when we could identify when there's some type of number or some type of variable that we could identify great CEOs and managers who have this uh, deep purpose gene in them, you know, like those who want to build shareholder value, those who want to build a better society, and we could discern the contenders from the pretenders. I don't know if there's a way to measure that now. Maybe there is. And the second thing is the companies who don't shout it out, uh, those are the companies where I'd love to see, like, like Dave Cody with Honeywell when he did that. You, can, you don't know how, how far-reaching and how, value, how much value add there's going to be from doing something that amazing. So in your language, actually, this, the hunt is on for this. People are already showing tentative correlations between TSR Five-year, ten-year moving TSR averages. TSR is total stock, uh, total stock return, right? Yeah. Okay. They're also trying to link it to other kind of short-term indices of performance, because in your language of alpha, the idea is if purpose-driven companies are truly driving value to shareholders, that's, along with everybody else, that's where you got to be. Show up. So, can we measure that? So, fine. You might say, I'm going to measure your ESG footprint which means I'm also trying to give you an out saying, okay, the shareholder return is not good, but you're very high on the ESG scores. 
No, the idea is to correlate what you're doing with TSR. Total stock right? returns. All right, so, yeah, think, so you could yeah. do good, but you better produce a return for me. Yes. And if we can show that, and there's a lot of people trying to see if this is effective. There's tentative studies that show correlation because they're only able to look at one year time horizon. They, look, they need to look at for longer to be able to make a definitive causal argument. But this is the question that is being researched now. I myself am part of a study where we're getting large sample data over time and trying to see if this purpose orientation in any way can if explain future financial returns. Boy, oh boy, if you do that, uh, call me at three in the morning. I'd love to I'd love to get the jump on that because uh, th that's going to be that's going to be not only a value add, that's going to be a differentiator and a competitive advantage. If you're able to do that as a company, you're going to stand out head and shoulders. You know, it's a it's a it's a cycle because you'd attract more capital, you'd attract better people, uh, you'd be able to drive down your cost, you'd be able to provide more. It just feeds upon itself. Yeah. The holy grail. So we are trying to figure that out and see. So there are two pathways to it. One is to say, well, I don't have the financial returns, but I have these other returns that I hope you will count for something. And the other one is say, no, 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 measure me on my financial returns. And guess what? I'm going to show you the, the hidden nuggets of companies that are going to be delivering value into the future for you. Well, so I'm thinking about a deep purpose index. Like we had Kay Schuller, we're going to have a deep purpose index. We're going to come out with some new thing. And if you could find that, that I think that would spur a, a movement in greater numbers than any letter Larry Fink can send out from BlackRock. <laughs> because you're going to show it in black and white. That's, 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 that's really uh, bottom line. Because at the end of the day, uh, you want to increase shareholder value, but you don't want to destroy the planet. You don't want to destroy people. You don't want to make them cogs. You don't want to go home at night, you know, saying that you run an organization that could have been run, you know, you know, the mid-century <laughs> slave ship or something. You know, you don't want to do that. Who wants to do that? And, you know, I think this is an absolute fair challenge that you're posing also is that, okay, Ranjay, you're asserting that employees are more motivated in purpose-driven companies, right? Great. Show me the money. Where's the bottom line? Does that translate into better returns? You're saying talent stays with you. Oh, really? Show me how does that translate into better strategies. You're saying better strategies... How does that all that translate into, we have a common denominator here on understanding the bottom line. Does it matter? And if it doesn't, that's okay. Then tell me that, you know what, you're going to take a haircut. And the question is, how much of a haircut is it going to be? And then give me a measure of social impact, right? So I, I just want to know what am I getting myself into here? But, but and even, I think that's an absolute fair question. But even from HR's perspective, from human resource perspective, if you have this, you can say, look, every time we hire someone, it costs us X thousands of dollars whatever it might be, if we are on the wrong hire. Uh, since we've done this and we have a purpose and everyone knows it, we have longer uh, uh, um, employee retention. We're not turning over people. Our customer retention has gone up. We all know exactly what the CPA is, cost per acquisition. Now, cost per person, cost per customer. These are quantifiable. If you could show me over time a company that did that, and I have... Uh, PhD from MIT and I could work here or there and I choose their same salary because they have a deeper purpose and this case closed. Yeah. I think that's the next wave of work you're going to see. There's a lot of really interesting work that is happening 
which is trying to empirically test some of these ideas just to kind of i my idea was to inspire i was doing this as an exploratory study to say there are companies out there doing some extraordinary things hopefully we can learn from them now the question is is it just a a biased little sample i've had a convenient sample over here is this generalizable can others do it can we do it at scale and what might that look like i think all those are absolutely fair questions but i think we will see answers to them in the coming year maybe two so you're going to see people now much more able to empirically back up or disprove these claims so i think that's going to be the next exciting part of this conversation yeah i think now with a lot of millennials wanting more purpose in their jobs especially if the pandemic who knows you know where where that can go where you could see a customer a, a employee retention and job satisfaction and a whole bunch of halo effects that could happen from this you know uh, i agree with you millennials maybe are considered to be the ones who are more purpose driven but i think the rest of us are too i think who doesn't want to have a purpose in their life yeah. who doesn't want to work for an organization where they don't buy into the purpose and say just pay me more and i don't really don't care what you think of me you know i had a friend of mine send me a message a few years ago and he is it was a one line text which said i quit and so i immediately texted him back he's a dear friend of mine doing very well and i said what happened he said i was becoming the kind of person i didn't want to be Yeah. And, and and then I followed up with him and he he said that you know you know he had been introspecting about his life and what he wanted to do and where he wanted to be and I go back to the KPMG exercise which KPMG made all their employees do every employee had to fill out an index card and ask the question why do I come to work Of course you can ask the larger question that why do I exist why am I here and and then try to connect it to and how does my work allow me to live my life purpose i think we should all all of us at all ages expect more out of our lives and out of our work so let's leave it here cuz it doesn't get better than that the name of the book folks is deep purpose the heart and soul of high performance companies ranjay gulati and i want to say one more thing about your book I know you're an academic and I expected really terrible sentence structure that but you kept this book moving with a lot of great stories. I like you start off every chapter with a story, almost every I think every chapter, yeah. I think almost every chapter. There are so many new companies I learned about that I kept circling all throughout the book, but uh if you if you if you I think look, I think you're on the you're you're in the early innings on this and just the fact that you just asked the question and brought it to life. it is a lot it gives a lot of food for thought for a lot of companies so uh, kudos for that that is absolutely fantastic and as we mentioned on the you know previous call we spoke uh, together privately just the fact that people are asking the questions is a win yeah. well i learned a lot from this conversation so i want to thank you for really making this a really insightful and provocative conversation and so Oh, it does, it, it doesn't get better than that when a Harvard professor, MIT guy says to a guy who barely went to one year Brooklyn College that he learned something, I couldn't have a happier day. And my oh. parents are very happy because they didn't spend nothing. They spent very little on tuition. <laughs> all right, Sanjay, <laughs> all the power to you and and best of luck. Mm-hmm. I hope this book goes on and really uh just 
in the, in this in the, in the boardrooms across America, across the world, really, just start asking the question. And if ten percent of these companies start in that path, it's a happy day. Yeah. Right. All right, Sanjay. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you. Pleasure. Right. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.